Sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Thank you for joining me here at the back of the range. I'm your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 31. I hope everyone had an amazing week and enjoyed watching the Open Championship. What a finish, what a worthy champion in Francesco Molinari. That European Ryder Cup team is getting tougher and tougher. So, a couple updates about some past guests, and actually one future guest. Big congrats to Ryan Howison and Gene Elliott. They went across the pond, they qualified for the Senior Open Championship, which will be held at the Old Course in St. Andrews. Super excited for them both. Ryan was our guest on episode 24, Gene episode 27. We'd also like to congratulate Mike McCoy. So Mike, for those of you that don't know, has racked up numerous accomplishments as an amateur in the game of golf. He is the 2013 U.S. Mid-Am champ. He played on the 2015 Walker Cup team. And the day before he left for Scotland, he said he'd join us here later this summer at the back of the range. So we have that to look forward to. Guys, good luck in St. Andrews. Hope you all have a great time. Before we get started, you know the drill. Couple housekeeping items. We are an Apple podcast. We are on Spotify. Uh, you can find all of our previous episodes by going to the central hub of the podcast, thebackoftherange.com. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You'll find all that information in the show notes of this podcast. Remember, on Instagram, we started something called Free Towel Tuesdays. We have some caddy towels with the center slit in them. You can put them over an umbrella or an alignment stick has our logo on them. So follow us on Instagram. We give them away for free on Tuesdays. We're at the back of the range podcast and uh, yeah, everyone needs a golf towel. So pop on over there and uh, tag some friends. We'll get you a towel. Again, if you like the podcast, please continue to share it with your friends on social media. We can't thank you enough for doing that. So episode 31, this was an absolute treat. Uh, Our friend Kevin Hammer, who continues to be a huge supporter of the podcast, helped set this one up. A few weeks ago, I had the thrill of visiting with Bob Murphy. Do you want a list of his accomplishments? Okay. 1965, U.S. Amateur Champion. Won it at Southern Hills. That was his first USGA event. In 1966, he won the NCAA Individual National Championship while at the University of Florida. Let's see. He's played the World Cup, Walker Cup, Ryder Cup. Multiple wins on the PGA Tour. Oh, he's also Rookie of the Year, too. Multiple wins on the Champions Tour. He worked TV, calling the Ryder Cup and the Masters. Murph has done it all. He's seen it all and shared some unreal stories about the start of the PGA Tour with Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas playing the Ryder Cup with Jack Nicholas. That's actually one of my favorite stories. But there are tons of them, and this is going to be a fantastic episode. So without any more delay, Murph, welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. Can't thank you enough for your time and for welcoming me into your home office, letting me drag all these mics and cables all over your house. Um, Is this the first podcast you've ever done? Well, um, maybe so. Yeah, I don't know. One thing, uh, as I've gotten older now, my memory is not what it used to be. (laughs) Hell, I, I can't remember a lot of stuff that I forgot, so... Well, okay, (laughs) that works. So I'm surrounded by a a, a lot of these trophies here. Um, Gosh, you have have Florida State Amateur trophies. You have some some professional uh, accomplishments. If you had to pick one, 
You gotta you gotta leave the you gotta leave the building with one of these trophies. Which one are you leaving with? Well, the the uh, heartfelt, of course, would be the U.S. Amateur. Uh, it's hard to deny that uh, as an amateur, working and learning to play, that uh, winning that tournament was uh, a surprise. Surprised all my friends. <laughs> Surprised at the people that I beat. So. Um, that was that was good, and and I know um, Arnold Palmer said it many times in in uh, our career being around him that winning the amateur uh, really told him that he could play. He he said I felt like I could play better than even I thought I could. So sure. So it was a it was a win on which to to go forward. Yeah. Right. So you you mentioned the uh the the uh u.s amateur and you know your beginning in the, in the game of golf we always kind of try and highlight how each person that's been a guest on the podcast how they've gotten started in the game and yours it's it's amazing how the the different stories kind of come through in each and every guest but yours is incredibly unique so give me just a, a brief history of of growing up and and getting into the game and how it really was a little bit of just an uncertainty of how you got started. Yeah, I I grew up in a uh, phosphate mining village up in Mulberry, Florida. We lived, our village was in a town called Nichols. And so there, guess what? There were no golf courses. Okay. <laughs> uh, but my dad played, he would drive to Lakeland uh, and or Bartow uh, to play and in the summertime, I used to caddy for him, and um, I, I never really, as a, a crazy young kid uh, who played baseball and football, uh, I tried basketball, but to one no one's surprise, I wasn't quite fast enough. So okay. I said, "What well, the heck with that?" Um, but I I learned a lot from from working for my dad, not the least of which was. Uh, he spent an awful lot of time practicing his short game, chipping. He'd walk out of the back of the house and throw down three balls and chip them out of the base of a tree or something like that. And then he'd try to hit the tree two or three feet above the ground. And <clears throat> So he, he had learned how to practice. And the thing that I learned uh, about golf was when I caddied for him, he gave me a dollar and he bought me a hot dog and a Coke. So I figured uh, I didn't really care if I had anything to do with golf at all. These people were cheap. <laughs> give, me, give me a buck. Come on. So, But I started to get a little hankering for golf. And I went away to school to, to uh, play baseball for the University of Florida. And, and then I, I re-injured an old injury. And I I couldn't couldn't throw overhand. My shoulder had been separated and and it would become dislocated uh, without much problem at all. And I I started playing golf mainly for something to do because I was in pre med at the time and um, I wanted to be a pharmacist. And so I was studying pre med until I got to the uh, to the labs when they would give you a glass of something and say, tell me what's in that. So 
I said, wait a minute. To myself, I, I should be out hitting wedges. I, I should, <clears throat> this is uh, this is not going to work. So I got out of that and I got into education and coaching. Coaching I knew would be fine with me because I had so much good coaching when I was in high school and made all the difference in my sports abilities. Yeah. So if if you don't get this injury to your pitching arm, right? Your path to golf is pretty uncertain at that time. Then, yeah, I mean that that wasn't even a, a thought. Wasn't even a thought. No. Okay, so you 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 have to get out of baseball. You get into golf just as almost like a rehab physical activity to do. Yeah, and something to get me away from uh, from the books. From the books, yeah, and. Um, uh, I was no star at the books, so I, I decided I would use my time to go out and hit hit a few balls up. I used to hit them on the drill field, which was right in back of where the stadium is now. It's it's all, of course, parking and everything today. Sure. But um, that's where I practiced, and I took uh, required physical education in in college and uh, I couldn't take normal activity because of my arm so I I took golf and I started to learn from a man who was the golf coach at Florida at that time Conrad Railing yeah and Conrad was just a wonderful guy he he said I I see you hitting balls and I realize that that you don't play and I said no but I caddied for my dad enough, and then after he'd go up and he'd have a beer and a hot dog and and get his money that he won, uh, then I decided that this the game took too long. It wasn't exciting. Uh, to me, it wasn't exciting, no. So Conrad Raylan is, is teaching this physical education class, and – he sees something in you and he works with you and you end up basically you get to keep your scholarship from baseball, but then you find yourself on the golf team. Well, uh, that's because I made a pain in the neck out of myself. I went down one day, Conrad was uh, helping me learn to hit a ball really. And I went down to his office one day and he said, uh, you know, he, he was just open all the time to come in and, and I said, well, I'm doing pretty well. I'm uh, learning to try to figure out how to control the distance of shots. He said, I want you to take a pitching wedge, but I want you to hit it 80 yards. I want you to hit it 100, 120. And you could hit it further than that, of course. But I told him that that was sort of my progress. And and I said, uh, when do you have tryouts for the golf team? And he said, oh, he said, I, I don't think you're quite ready for the golf team. Okay. But I said, well, okay. Well, and then, you know, within a couple of months, it came time for the tryouts, and I asked him if I could play, and he said, yeah. So I went out and I played, and I think I shot 83. Okay. Um, so I wasn't too bad. No, not at all for someone that just started <laughs> the game. Just, But uh, – then the next the next uh, semester, uh, I tried out again, and this time I shot seventy two. Oh gosh! And I was not, uh, you know, and I was not in the top five. Right. So I was a 
reserve and somebody didn't show up to play one day and Conrad put me in and um, I shot 72 and I played every match after that so he was uh, he was in the right place at the right time for old Murph he sure was absolutely so you you get in you start playing now for for University of Florida and you're um I mean gosh you're you, I'm just looking at some of the records and some of the transitions you go from basically walking on to a to a division one college golf team tell me how you found yourself playing in the u.s amateur in 1965 <laughs> seems like a pretty big jump i started playing essentially in 1961 and then as i said within the next um you know like two years um within the next two years i decided that i should i should play I was just practicing all the time. Sure. And so then um, within the next year and a half, I won the Florida Florida State Open. I won the Florida Amateur. And then the next year, I won the Florida Amateur again. And that's when my dad's golfing buddies, who were um, people who own businesses, the Badcock family, um, the Leon Leon Sykes, the Sykes family, uh, they own Florida tile, ceramic tile business. And they, it just was um, incredible how those guys helped me get started. Oh, George Jenkins of Public Supermarkets. So those were the three guys who told my dad, Bobby uh, needs to go play the U.S. Amateur. So my dad says, well, we've, we looked into it, but it's in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And he said, we, we don't have the money for Bobby to fly out there. And so they basically reached in their pocket and they each handed my dad about 200 bucks a piece, which was highly illegal, but we didn't know that. Sure. <laughs> and away I went and I came back with a big old trophy. So that was, so. A, that was a good deal. Okay, so before we get out to Southern Hills in Tulsa, so just to make sure everyone that's listening to this episode understands what Mr. Murphy just said, really started playing golf in 1961, and in the next four years, two back-to-back Florida State Amateur Championships and a Florida Open Championship. Not a lot of people accomplish that after just playing golf in four years, so it's just an incredible athletic achievement. And then, so you get out to Southern Hills, this is your first and... Pretty much, this is your first USGA event, so you have to qualify for it. Well, it wasn't my first. Uh, well, yeah, USGA. You're right. First you're USGA. Right. Yes. So you qualify for a USAM in your first try. No one knows who you are. I'm assuming. Okay, so you get out there, and I mean, what what was the experience like being in your first USGA event? What how how did you have the mindset to to say, hey, I can win this thing or I can compete in this thing? Well, the the fact is that uh, Southern Hills it was about uh, ninety to a hundred every day. Sure. So I was I was at home with the heat. Right. Um, I knew a lot of my college buddies were there playing, which they did and had for quite a while, and so I was at home with that, and so I, I was just a I was a lucky guy, 
and yeah. I got a I got a lot of help from a lot of key people, and uh, I guess I should say that I took advantage of it. Hey, you have to. You get your spot. You gotta you gotta take it. So you so you win the U.S. Amateur. You go back to you go back to Florida the following year, and um, you win the individual NCAA national championship. Right. Well, it it just was all playing in. Um, I remember some of my pals from uh, California who um, they were very surprised to learn, uh, you know, that that I I could win the state amateur a couple of times and whatnot. And so uh, I didn't see I didn't find that too exciting because I didn't I didn't truthfully understand that. I wasn't supposed to do that. I wasn't supposed to win. Sure. Um, so that's where the athletic background allowed me to stand on that pitcher's mound and throw at anybody. And I didn't have all the statistics they have today to tell me that this guy, if I threw it on the outside right corner, he was going to kill it. Right. So I didn't know that, so I threw it all over the plate. I, I threw a lot of crazy, loopy stuff, and uh, it, wasn't, it was not easy to hit. So your your athletic background in baseball just kind of led into your mindset in golf, so to speak. What you're saying is, right? Hey, I don't, I don't, I'm teeing it up just like this guy is, and I don't know him, and he doesn't know me, and who cares? Let's go, let's go see what happens. Yeah, exactly right. And um, uh, in that regard, I was lucky because um, having Conrad work with me, and there was a a pro in in Lakeland. His name was Jackson, and uh, he was at the local golf course in Lakeland and then went with uh, Mr. Jenkins public supermarkets out to build a golf course there in Lakeland and uh, it's called the Lone Palm yeah and it it was a beauty it was a beauty it was a, a Dick Wilson design and mm-hmm. uh, I always remember when I was practicing I I told Mr. Jenkins, I said, I don't know if you know this because Mr. Jenkins wasn't the best golfer. Uh, I said, I hit every club in my bag every time I play a round of golf here. So that means that Dick Wilson was that good. And uh, it still is today. It's a terrific, terrific golf course. And I, I just, uh, I just seemed to capitalize things i didn't i didn't have other things going on in my life at that time so i was pretty much on my own and playing golf it's it's interesting because there's a lot of um you know i've spoken to a lot of people so far that have other options other than playing professionally they've had whether it's been different sports or different academic pursuits or different business pursuits so you really felt that this was I got to take advantage of all these opportunities because I really don't know what else I'm going to do. Well, when I graduated from college, uh, I was offered a job to work as a coach in a private school down in Fort Lauderdale. And um, my annual salary would be $5,200. That's $5,200. And uh, um, I didn't know much about money either because I didn't have any. So. Um, that, however, didn't last long. I went to the, to the people who helped me get to the U S amateur and I went to work for them in the, uh, ceramic tile business. 
and I lasted about oh probably three or four months and I went into the the uh, president of the company and I sat down and I said um, I I think I want to learn how to play and to learn how to play I need to play places I can't afford to go and I want to play uh, probably want to play professionally I'm going to have to make that decision pretty quick I'm out of school now and I've I've won some stuff, so maybe this is the time. So he said, you're right. So I walked out, and two days later, he confronted me with a, a list of uh, 20 members at Lone Palm Golf Club who had donated or were going to donate $2,000 apiece to send me on wow. the tour. So that's the kind of support I had. Yeah. Um, then I knew that... Um, for whatever reason, turned out to be a very good logical thinking. I told Mr. Sykes, I said, I don't want 20 people backing me because let's just say that I go out and I miss cuts and what, how many phone calls am I going to get right. from okay. my sponsors and... I might not have all the right answers for them. So he said, you're right. So he says, I'll take care of it. Um, I will back you, and we'll be partners. So, so there you go. that's what we did. Nice. And uh, I signed a, uh, a three-year deal with him in which I would pay back the expenses, and then I would get – uh, 60% and he got 40%. Gotcha. And so I came back after my first year and we sat down and, um, I was going to write him a check to, to pay the percentage. And he said, no, no, no. he said, that's, that's over. That was just a contract. That's okay. Interesting. So I paid nothing. He paid, matter of fact, he paid for all my expenses. <laughs> wow. So um anyhow that uh, that's what happens to people who are really really lucky. And it just shows what a what what kind of person my dad was too because um he worked in a fertilizer plant. And and these guys ran these big businesses, but he was their choice for playing golf and having yeah. fun and so it's, uh, well, the Irish are lucky. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> so you turned pro in 67, and you're on the PGA Tour in 68. You had a re you had just had an amazing uh, rookie season. You won back-to-back uh, -back in Philadelphia, and then you won the Thunderbird. And you said, in, <laughs> I'm just chuckling because of how ridiculous the money is on the PGA Tour right now, but... You set an all-time rookie record of $105,000 that year. Right. Big time. Beat Jack Nicklaus's record by 50000 There you go. That's how low the money was. Of course. Yeah, um, yeah I did a, a thing. I was giving a, a talk, and I started thinking about what what kind of money would I have made if, and this was two years oh, ago. Oh, don't do that to yourself, Bob. I don't, did. Don't, oh, gosh. <laughs> I, I made, in round numbers, I made a million six. On the regular tour, and I, 
I made um, a lot because I won 11 times on the senior tour. Right. So I did well there. But if I had my record, and I only did it on top 10 finishes, uh-huh. I didn't even go to 20th. Today, you finish 20th in a golf tournament, and you win. You win about um, 120,000. 20th spot. So anyway, I did this. For top 10s. Finishes only. I would have won $49 million. <laughs> <laughs> did you uh, Did you have a nice little cry after that, or did, did, did you have to sit in a dark room after that? Yeah, I yeah. called the tour, and I told them, you, you owe me money. Look, <laughs> I just did the homework. And, and what they say, did I get, they probably hung up on you. when T- you, They told me it was a bad connection. Yeah, yeah. something like that. <laughs> wow. So you, you have these great victories on, on the tour and, and very unique ones. I mean, you, you win, uh, you know, after the two rookie wins, you win uh, the Greater Hartford Open in 70. Then you go down to the Australia, win the Australian Masters in 72. What was the experience like being in Australia? I well, mean, Florida was, boy uh, just, you know, getting on a plane. What was that travel like? It was uh, extraordinary. We uh, arrived in Australia on Friday the 13th. Oh, gosh. At one o'clock in the afternoon, okay. we got to the hotel, and our room number was thirteen thirteen. So Gail says something like, "I hope you're not superstitious because this is not really working out right." No. So I said, "No, it's okay. I'll win by thirteen shots." So, but I didn't do that. But I won the tournament. Nice. So it was. I called thirteen's my lucky number. Yeah, but it was good. I mean, see, the golf courses in Australia suited me to a T. Tight. The greens were all this. A lot of undulation. Very undulating and fast, really fast. And so, uh, I mean, I played with David Graham the last round in that event, and one of the Australians – um, who never never came to America to play, but he was a heck of a player, and he and Peter Thompson and some of those guys were uh, playing very well. But uh, David, I'll never forget it. He leaned over to me on the 18th tee, and he said, you are so far ahead, you're not going to believe it. And what happened was there was no scoreboards and everything, no reporting back to right, you. Right. You knew who, how you stood with the guy you were playing with. And sure. That was about it. So he said, just relax and boogie down this last hole. So I did. And of course, I won the tournament. And um, so I always tell David, he, he uh, owns part of that, that uh, trophy there. Yeah. But um, it was good. It was great to play uh, around the world. I didn't play the British Amateur, British Open, excuse me, like I should have. But it was cold. Almost everywhere we played, it was really cold. And I am a very, very poor cold player. And I was then terrible. And I know now it's because I I did have the arthritis and right. we didn't know what it was. I just thought I ached and pained every day. Sure. But um, I didn't play the British Open like I should have. Uh, 
and today, I mean, goodness, they, they hardly ever get really, you know, bad torrential rains and cold in that it's, anymore. Yeah, it so, seems like there's an occasional one, but for the most part, it, it's you're right. So before we get into the, uh, I, I definitely want to talk about the Ryder Cup. Um, there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about with the Ryder Cup with respect to your playing career and then also uh, your your TV career, you know, being around the Ryder Cup. But you mentioned the arthritis. So you had some pretty serious health issues that that found its way into your career. Um, was that pretty much in your 40s? I mean, you, you won these events. It looks like, uh, you know, there's a big gap, like an 11-year gap between your careers or between your your victories, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was, and I, I don't know, um, I don't have a clue how how I won the Canadian Open because I was a I was a basket case. My hands were all swollen. Sure. <clears throat> My fingers were terribly swollen. Uh, I never played one hole of practice. I, I couldn't go out. It was cold and it was raining. And so I stayed in the spa and just worked on my hands and heat and massage and teed it up and, and won the tournament. So that was uh, a mystery. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that was that was the last of me on the tour uh, because the next year I, I played through the Florida swing and I just I just had to stop yeah. I couldn't play so um, that was that was okay too because I went uh, from that I started working for CBS television uh, and uh, that, uh, that was good because I was I was watching guys that that played really, really well, and I, I learned a lot of things just watching them. Sure. And then I was a better reporter because I understood yeah. what they were doing and why they did it. So so before we talk about your TV career, I just wanted to lead into, you You played on the 1975 Ryder Cup team, the victorious Ryder Cup team. And before we started recording, you mentioned something really interesting that I think a lot of people that listen that may not be aware of, you played on one team, but you had qualified for two others. Right now, yeah. At that time, when you turned um, when you turned pro, you had three years of wait time uh, if you took all the classes that were required by the PGA of America. Now these classes, and I know it's a PGA Tour now, but it was not like that then. They were not divided into two entities. So when you say classes, yeah, you you learned the. Uh, the business of uh, golf. You learn the business of of uh, running a golf shop and whatnot because the the tour then was the PGA of America's tour. Right. And when we split from that, um, it was it was primarily because we knew uh, that we could organize far better. Per we were playing for a hundred thousand dollars a week when we started the tour right and so we did we we had a big meeting i'll never forget it because mark mccormick the big agent uh, arnold's agent agent, and jack's agent at the time uh and gary players so i remember the big three sitting up in the front of this meeting uh as mccormick was talking about what we could do we could leave he said i will guarantee you We'll play for two hundred thousand a week, 
because I can make contacts, certainly in the big cities, the big companies, and we'll get some backing. We'll get some television going. We need more television than we have. And so he says we will organize it where you will pay Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer and Gary Player an appearance fee every tournament, and you guys will play for the rest. And Arnold stood up and he said, um, Mark, what, what are you talking about? He said, well, we're going to charge the tournaments a fee for you three guys who are the stars for you to play. Arnold said, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We never agreed to that, so we're not doing that. You put it in the purse, and we'll play for it. Now that, that is the start of the PGA Tour as we know it today, when the players got themselves together. And with Arnold's statement, that was it was done. And this is Arnold Palmer as the, I mean, the marquee player in the game. Right. Instead of him saying, yeah, give me that money for myself. Right. He said, no, no, no. The, the collective needs to gain from this. Let's all stand together shoulder to shoulder. And so brilliant move on his. So he really saw down the line what needed to be done for the tour to grow. Yeah, he, he did for sure. And um, they, they later corrected the European tour because they were paying. Sure certainly paid Jack and Arnie and Gary to come over and play and whatnot, and they continued that for a lot of years. So they were throwing a lot of money out of a purse um, to the three or four stars to come over and play, and um, they finally realized that that was wrong. Sure. So, yeah, the the tour then, uh, we started to grow, and... You you uh, had to realize that Arnold and Jack and Gary and some of the uh, bigger name pros at that time, Don January, Sam Sneed, um, they were saying, guys, we're going to have these tournaments. we got to play. You can't just play two weeks and go home for two and dip and dip. you got to play. Yeah. So we were able to kickstart that. The tour today has a problem, as they've had since I was on the PGA Tour, and that is getting the stars to play more than they do. Right. Tiger plays, what, 13, 14 times a year? And, by the way, it's usually the same 13 or 14 tournaments yep. that he plays. That's no good. Yeah. It's no good. But um, I don't see Tiger uh, expressing any real concern about that (laughs) no i i would i would agree um you know i i the roster on this you know just getting back to this this roster on this Ryder cup team that you were on this is the only one you played in your captain was arnold palmer right and and, you know looking at this team (laughs) i mean half of the members are in the world golf hall of fame right you got Casper, Floyd, Guyberger, Lou Graham, Littler, Nicholas, J.C. Sneed, Trevino, Weisskopf. There were three rookies on that team. You were one of them. The other two were Johnny Miller and Hale Irwin. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. did you have a sense of what you were getting into on that team when you just looked around? Well, you you knew 
that it was not going to be much of a competition. That that you right. knew. And you're 32 years old at the time. That's that's how old you were when you're on that team. So you're look so you're looking around and you know you're gonna just destroy GB and I because they weren't Europe at that time. That's right. It was after that tournament, as a matter of fact, that uh, Nicholas started the rumbling. Uh, we need to change this, uh, and it will become a competition. And that's what happened, and it sure is now. So that was a very positive move on and for the Ryder Cup itself. Sure. And your first match, so you you went, let's see, so you played the Saturday afternoon uh, four ball with Jack Nicholas. Right. How was that experience? Did he come to you and say, I want Murphy, or, or how'd that work out? Well, what he said was on the, um, uh, like the third hole uh, after I hit two drives. Yeah. Um, he said, you know, in practice rounds, I've been, I've been hitting seven iron to this hole. And now I'm hitting a five iron off of your drive. So I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll try to improve that. <laughs> so then we got on the next hole and Jack hit it out in the trees. And I said, uh, I said, Jack, um, I, I play from the fairway. Is there any reason you can't hit a damn fairway? This is not fair. So he was playing terribly at that uh-huh. time, and he was just—I think he was just tired from uh, what he did and how he did it, and, and he did all the time. Sure. So he just sort of wore down, and um, there was the player uh, Brian Barnes. His name was. He wore fishing shorts and a hat with lures in it, and all this guy had three or four beers in his golf oh, bag. Perfect. Perfect. And he beat the tar out of Jack Nicholas. So, at the end of the the deal, um, I asked Arnold if I could give an award to the player that played the best for the European squad. He said sure, or for the Great Britain and Irish squad. Right. He said sure. I gave the award to Nicholas. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're riding. We're riding home with Jack and his plane uh-huh. uh, after the event, and he still gave you riding his plane after. Yeah, a- Jack says the the uh, restroom is right in the back, and that's your seat. So just go on back there and get, nice. get, get away from me. That's great. That's great. So you're a rookie on the Ryder Cup team, just just giving giving uh, Jack the needle the whole time. That's awesome. Oh, Jack is a needler, boy. Oh, boy, he. He's a funny guy. They they pulled a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. But um, yeah, that was that was terrific. And you know, I qualified in '71. I turned uh, pro as I started in '68, mm-hmm. and um, I qualified. Well, I qualified for the Ryder Cup in '69, and then I qualified again in '71. Uh, uh, but I couldn't play because right. I I didn't have that three years in to get the the credentials from the PGA. Yeah, I just think of what that would be like today. You know, you got to go tell Jordan Spieth that you can't be on the Ryder Cup team because you need to go take classes on how to run a golf. Well, yeah. they they um, they got it right. Yeah, they they did. got it right. They uh, a guy gets on the tour then. Uh, they they just changed. They got different classifications now. Right. You won't be uh, a certified uh, class three, I think it is, PGA of America professional until you complete the schooling. And, right. 
whatnot. But then the tour is another category, class one or something. Yeah. So they got it right. Yep. So um, this wasn't your first experience with the Ryder Cup, but you mentioned briefly your your career and how you got started in TV. Um, you covered several Ryder Cups as a whole reporter. Right. And I believe it was around 2002 to 2008. Yeah. So you're inside the ropes on certain matches. So I believe the 2002 was the Belfry, if I remember uh, correctly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Remember my memory. Uh, That's okay. Uh, well, I'm, I'm doing the best I can, too. But, so. <laughs> but uh, yes, we. I didn't do a lot of on-the-ground in those i had a um, i had a tower okay. and in that tower i would do uh, three or four holes okay and um so that was that was good too i i could see a lot from there and i could i had all the monitors so i i could really uh, see stuff happening or anticipate stuff sure. happening um i really enjoyed that uh, uh it's a tension attention built uh, deal now and uh, Gary Player and uh, Gary Player <laughs> Gary Coke and mm -hmm. and the guys Roger Malt be on the ground like that uh, they they do a terrific job of holding you in there right with what's going on and it's because the producer is uh, he's the best in the business Tommy Roy yep. and he was easy to work for and um, he did a terrific job. Sure did. Been at the ma yeah, you've been at the Ryder Cup and and you've played in the Masters. You also were worked worked TV at the Masters. Yeah, I did. I worked for CBS probably eight or nine years, and then they wanted me to quit playing. Um, well, they were right because I was playing so badly with the arthritis right. being bad, uh, but I still had that sparkle that i thought i should be playing you sure know? so um i turned it down and um gary mccord uh came in and i i told frank i said you know mccord's a guy he he's a guy that has a great sense of humor and uh he might get away from you a few times and so frank said he won't get away from me murphy uh -huh. <laughs> nice but um and of course, he's turned out to be a, a terrific broadcaster, and um, brought in David Faraday. So there's a Quinella right there. Those two. Those two, absolutely. <laughs> so when you were working the Masters, were you on a specific hole, or how? What was your assignment when you were at the Masters? Yes, mostly I, I did. Uh, my tower was number ten. Okay. And then when we finally moved to the front side. Um, I got, um, I usually got 10 and five or six, the part three. Right. Uh, and 10 today, they, they don't treat that hole right today. How uh, so? They, they just, they don't cover that hole to say to you at home, this golf hole, the tee is 110 feet above the green. 110 feet that's a almost a 10-story building right <clears throat> and the green from a downslope usually a downslope unless you kill it now they all do they knock it down in the flat right um that green is difficult really difficult it's got an amazing amount of 
tilt and roll and um it's just not covered i remember one of the last tournaments i did i said when greg norman came through i said you know if greg norman could have made par on this hole every time he played the masters he would have won three times and the same with curtis strange and the same with tom watson he would another won another three times um that hole is just it's a bear there's been a lot of amazing things that happened at that hole i mean i'm just off the top of my head i'm thinking about let's see so 84 crenshaw making birdie there right were you on 10 were you on 10 at which that i time? called uh okay I think I said the greatest, greatest putt ever I've seen. ever seen. Yep, I remember yep. that now. Okay. Yeah. So I remember that. And then I obviously, uh, really recently, was Bubba making the, the shot there on that Crazy. Pool. Okay. And Rory putting it in the trees to the Rory left. the trees to the left. Um, that's, that's what killed everybody. Greg Norman drove it there yeah. almost every time he played. And then if I remember right, that's the hole that Weir beat Matisse in the playoff. That, yeah that, yeah i think i think you're right yeah, yeah. but uh that's that you're right i you know a lot of treatment goes to 11 and 12 and amen corner and rightly so but you know when they say that the back nine starts uh, or the the tournament starts on sunday in the back nine i mean man that well you know i i even said uh sarcastically to Greg Norman one day, I said, is there any reason that you just don't take a three iron and beat the hell out of it off that tee on number 10 and play a little stinger draw and run it down the hill? And he says, that's, that's not the way I play. (laughs) So, okay. Okay. I'll try to figure somebody else out. (laughs) Who are your favorite guys? I mean, obviously just by talking to you, you, like you said earlier, before we started recording, you uh, your sarcasm travels with you wherever you go, and you you uh, you're not afraid to have a little fun. Who are some of the guys when you're working TV that you can always count on to have a little fun with, get a good story out of, get good conversations out of? Well, um, at that time, um, Arnold was usually good yeah. for a, a good chat. Tiger, nothing, zero. So. I said, Tiger, there's only one thing wrong with that, and that is that you can never come at me with any criticism of what I say on the air because it won't be words from you. It'll only be words from me. So if you talk to me, I can report maybe something differently, something I don't know. I said, I don't know much about golf. I do know what you do and do well. I don't know why you don't want to talk. So, but that was the end of that. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah. But, um, no, most guys, you, you could always talk to Trevino. And and uh, <laughs> some days you got a, a serious little bit. Otherwise, it was a, a quip and a quote. And, sure. Uh, he was gone. Uh, but um, most most of the guys were congenial. Um I was not a big fan of interviewing guys right before they played, going sure. out on the practice tee, and sure. I didn't like to do that, uh, give an interview at that time. But if they had it set up where you could, on your way to the tee, go over. But the one thing that a, an announcer um, like that, uh, he, he should really be careful 
about putting negative thoughts in a guy's head before he goes out. Absolutely. You know, calling up what he did wrong the last three times he's played the hole. And it's one of the reasons I was very happy to get out of television, golf, broadcasting, statistics. Okay. I do not like statistics. I never have. Um, I said to Tommy Roy when when uh, we were parting ways, I said, you know, Tommy, I am, I don't remember when you uh, talked to me about uh, doing television with you. I don't remember you saying that you wanted me to do anything except talk about golf. Right. So I said, would you rather hear me tell you that, that um, Curtis Strange hits 72.6% of the fairways, or would you rather me tell you that this is a dogleg right, and Curtis is not comfortable on this tee because he'd rather see a right-to-left picture. Right. He doesn't have it. Well, and, and I would think that that's what the listener at home wants to hear out of their broadcaster because now you're adding credibility because you know Curtis, you know mm-hmm. his game. Anyone can pull up, you know, with shot link and all these stats, anyone can do all that sort of stuff. And they do. What do you think that the the typical viewer wants? Like, I talked to Joe Buck a few episodes ago, and and he was is very interesting to hear his take on on things. Um, you know, whether I'm watching the U.S. Open on Fox or I'm watching on and on CBS, like, what are your thoughts on where where golf coverage is right now, where it should go, and and you know what fans really want. Well, most fans uh, tell me they would like to watch a whole lot less putting. Okay. Let us see some shots. Uh, That, of course, is a logistics problem for television. Today, it's not nearly what it was because the cameras are all, they're wireless. And um, uh, they they can just drag those things most anywhere they want to go and get there quickly. So... Uh, I I don't know. I just like to. I'd like to be able to see more shots set up, and then as my my friend who was my number one critic when I was doing television, he said, "Well, you you got us today." I said, "What happened?" He says, "Well, you told us that you know Curtis Strange getting ready to hit a six iron." And you think it should be a, an okay shot for him. But there's one danger on this hole. It's to the left. If you miss the green to the left, you have gone way off line. Right. So Curtis hits it. It comes up. Somebody in the fairway says, that ball's going left. And my friend says, you don't say anything. Yeah. And the ball, they got the ball bouncing and careening down the hill, and you don't say anything. He just, said that. He said, I'll assure you that almost everybody that was listening to you setting up the shot, they appreciate that because they're thinking, oh, Jesus, he just did what Murphy. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. so that's uh, that's when it's good. Nice. That's when it's good. I know that you've been affiliated, or, or at the time, you're affiliated a lot with Callaway Golf. Yes. And 
played a lot of their early stuff, and I know everyone knows Callaway now. Phil plays Callaway, and and a lot of the top players and their Odyssey putters. And um, but when you started playing Callaway with the original Big Bertha, which I think in their first year was about a hundred and ninety cc head, it was the ugliest. Okay. That you ever saw. Okay. And, and then, like the year after, they bump it up to 270. But I know you played the Big Bertha Irons. And and I guess now someone signs with Callaway, these kids, and they're playing it. You're fine. But what was it like when they first came to you and you're looking at that stuff? What was your immediate thought? That actually, that, that club um, came into being about uh, three years into my contract with uh, Callaway. I okay. mean, I was there with with uh, Jim Dent and Chi-Chi and right. um, uh, Johnny Miller came on like the second year I was there in Colbert. Right, Jimmy Colbert. And um, so here, here we were. Colbert was playing his old ping irons uh-huh. and I was playing whatever I had. I always had a mixed match of clubs and they showed us this club and then we came back for the Tournament of Champions at La Costa. Uh-huh. And Ely Calloway says, nice bonus for anybody that plays these clubs. Uh-huh. So Colbert and I both played them. And I lost the tournament on the last hole to Nicholas. Okay. Because of those damn clubs. You hit the ball farther with them. Sure. And and you hit it more solid. And the last hole at La Costa was always right into the ocean breezes coming at you, right to left. And so I was between yardages, so I opted for the five iron. And I knocked it over the back in the Kakuya junk. And I lost the tournament. And Ely was standing at the back of the tent. He was right there. And he says, young man, you have made me very proud. And it was the thing. I mean, we started that tournament. We went out with towels on our bag so nobody could see the clubs. Right. Okay. (laughs) So these were like prototypes. Prototypes. Yes, they were. Now, were they the, I'm sorry, just to clarify, were they the woods or the irons or both? No, the the irons. Okay, so the Big Bertha irons. Yeah. So this is kind of like after the S2H2 stuff. Oh, yeah, that was already um, in in go and whatnot, but they were were not real golf irons. They were darts. Yeah. Yeah. but I've I've still got that set of clubs, and I'll tell you what I could play with them right now. Okay, because yeah. I I was fascinated because I know you, you yeah. had to get past the look. Right. You know the top line on that club was that wide. Yeah, it was super thick. And you just didn't you just didn't see it. You right. didn't understand it. Did you have any question about whether or not you're going to be able to play those irons, signing and playing them on this on the senior tour, or did you just like you really did? Oh, I knew I could play them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Colbert, the same way. Yeah. We knew. Once we got the grind on the on the sole right. to our desire, um, then we could knock off a little bit of the top line, and you were in business. But, no, they, they were uh, the most solid club I've ever played today. Wow. The most solid club. Yeah. yeah. 
No, I was real. I was real curious about that. Well, I I have just one other quick question. We have a little segment at the end called uh, the quick bucket. So these are just kind of random questions. Um, well, if you could, other than yourself, this is a delicate question. All right, whenever I talk to a professional, but if it's a delicate one, if you can give a major championship to anyone in history, can't be yourself. Sorry, who would that be? Wow. Well, I'd. I'd have to give Arnold Palmer one. PGA? Right. Yep. Dave Stockton beat Arnold and myself at Southern Hills. I was comfortable there. And I'm trying to remember, uh, is that 71 PGA? Or 74? It could have been 70, 71, 72, right yeah, in there. Yeah. Like that. And uh, Arnold and I finished tied for second. And um, I guess let's see my my buddy uh, Watson. He he doesn't have a PGA, does he? I don't think he has a PGA. Yeah. So that those are the guys that I I feel for. Yeah. Um, the same as I feel about not winning a, a major myself. Yeah. Um, what was your favorite major to play in? Which is the one that you felt really kind of almost always the the open. Yeah. It was the toughest. Fairways were not as wide and the greens were firm and fast. And US Open. That was me. Yeah. Yeah. Augusta was totally out of line with me because I played a fade. Same as Trevino. Yeah. Uh I played a fade. And about uh about seventeen out of eighteen holes at Augusta go. Yeah. So dog leg left. <laughs> dog leg left. Hit the mounds and scoot. Right. And if you got cut spin going into that, it just... Yeah. Yeah. But um, those were some greens there. Still are. Oh, yeah. Still are. If, uh, let's see, if you had to compare the 1986 Masters victory of Jack Nicklaus to a potential fifth green jacket of Tiger Woods, which would be the more substantial victory? It would be Nicklaus winning... The 86 Masters. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was um, that was an odd year. I mean... Uh, and you were there for it. Raymond Floyd, yeah. Raymond Floyd won the Senior Open, right? No, well, let's see, 86. Oh, he, 86 won the, he, won he won the U.S. Open. He won the U.S. Open. At Shinnecock. Yeah, Jack won the Masters, and I won the Canadian Open that same year. Yep. So... <laughs> But uh, yeah, that was that was some win, and I've I've read and you know I've listened to Jack talk various times about that. Uh, um, he he actually, I guess after he birdied nine, he he really got the feeling that he could play the back nine better than anybody there, and if he played it a little extra well that he'd win or could win. Well, Murph, you've been great with your time. Um, I wanted to get this one last story in. We started talking about it before we started recording. Um, tell me about, you were telling me about your first day on tour. What is that story? Give me that one. Okay. I have uh, just driven from uh, Florida with my card 
to play the tour. And I arrived to California, and it took about 12 and a half days, I think. It was just incredible how far it was. I had no idea. I was just a, a young guy with nothing but thoughts about golf, for heaven's sakes. And so anyway, I, I get out there, and I go out to the club, and so I go to hit some hit some balls. And that day, you didn't have a driving range Okay. at, a, at Pebble Beach. There was no driving range. So your first day on tour, you're at Pebble. Yep. Okay. My first tournament. First tournament. Good start. And uh, so I go out and and uh, I go to pour down my golf balls. You had your little shag bag. Sure. I poured the balls down and I realized I'd just poured them down next to Arnold, who was really working hard and somebody else. And um, so... We're, we're hitting, chatting, and Arnold says, well, welcome to the tour, Murph. You know, good to see you. I said, boy, I appreciate that, Arnold. I said, I am just a little bit nervous about this whole deal. He said, ah, you'll be all right. So about, you know, 10 minutes later, Arnold says, Murph, can you see my caddy? Those days the caddy went down, he picked up the balls, right? Sure. They shagged the balls, and... So I said, um, uh, Arnold, uh, I just hit your caddy with a driver right in the chest. Oh, and I did. I hit him right below the, the sternum. Right. Right there. Uh-huh. Whoop. Down he went, just like that. So Arnold says, you think he's okay? I said, well, I can't see him. but And then the caddy started, oh, he's okay, he's okay. Uh-huh. So Arnold says, welcome to the tour, Murph. You just start out killing, by God, Arnold Palmer's caddy. Your first day <laughs> on tour. <laughs> it got better after that. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, I uh, I can't thank you enough for the time. Um, this has been a lot of fun, a lot of great stories, and a lot of great, uh, gosh, I still keep looking around this office, and a lot of great things, and... Uh, and uh, a lot of great memories. But well, I'm uh, I'm glad you're doing this. This is a it's a good way for uh, people to to get to know guys and hear them. And yeah. you know, they've heard more from me than a lot of guys because of doing television all those years. But uh, uh, there, there's stories to be told, and uh, the story about Arnold and and uh, the tour when we were trying to start. You're that's not a not a well-known story and um yet there's in my mind there's no denying that um had it not been for arnold palmer at that time that night um i don't know what would happen to the pga tour as an organization because the, the pga of america did not want that to happen they didn't want to lose that tour right but um Today, the PGA of America is a total different organization. They now have um, professional business people who run their business. At the, at our time, they were guys who were club pros, right. went to be the president of the PGA and right. try to run it. That's a big business. Sure. God, I guess they got 25,000 members or so. Yeah. Um, so... It's a big business. 
But golf is good. Uh, I will say that I I really think that golf has so much merit. I know I I worked with uh, Hook a Kid on golf program up in West Palm for a lot of years, and um, I always felt we were doing a lot of really good things for kids. And our our mantra was to introduce them to golf. We didn't teach them how to play. Right. We we might fiddle with the grip a little bit or give them an idea of a swing, but uh, you know it's pretty amazing, really. You can stick a club in his can the hands of a kid, and his first swing will be truly athletic. Right. Boom! He will take it back swing and be right on balance all the way through. And it's not so, the brain, not the brain interference, right. the hands. And that's, I think that's why I knew I could play golf because I, I could hit a baseball. I was a better hitter than I was a pitcher, and I knew that I could hit this ball laying on the ground. It was a great challenge, but uh, I overcame it once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Yeah. Wow. All right, Murph. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, you very much for doing this. You bet. My pleasure. Well, there he is. There's the legend, Bob Murphy. Can't thank him enough for the time. Man, that was a fun afternoon. Hope you all enjoyed this episode. Hope you enjoyed previous ones. Again, go back to thebackoftherange.com. You can find all the episodes there. We'll see you next week at the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. <laughs>